We've been talking for several weeks about our identity as uh, beloved sons and daughters of God. There are two real key passages in the writings of Paul around this topic. We looked at one last week in Galatians 4. This one a bit similar in Romans 8 beginning in verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For the Spirit is not a spirit leading us into fear as living as slaves again. But rather, the Spirit is the one who has brought about our adoption into sonship. It is by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. And it is through His Spirit testifying to our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. For if we we will share in His glory... If indeed we share in his sufferings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It has been said that the longest journey a person ever takes is from the head to the heart. And when it comes to this matter of being a son or daughter of God, God's beloved, when it comes to what we have been talking about as our identity, that has certainly been true for me, it has been a long journey from what one writer has called objective reality, which is that is in fact that we are God's beloved sons and daughters, to subjective reality where we actually begin to live that out in our own life. And we live in confidence and security and uh, assurance and cooperation as opposed to the driven anxiety, a fearful, competitive way that we are tempted to live life as orphans. When I think about the long journey that I've been through, I'm reminded of the story in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, where Jesus comes across a blind man. And Jesus heals the blind man to give him back his sight. But Jesus, after the first touch, says to him, "Uh, what do you see? And the man says, well, I see men walking around, but they look like trees. So he needs a second touch. And in the second touch, his sight clears up. When it comes to being as beloved son of God, I have needed a lot more than two touches, to be sure. I can remember more than 30 years ago, some happy coincidences came together at the same time to begin to introduce me to this concept that I was the beloved child of God. Writings of Henry Nowen, the sermons of John uh, Claypool, uh, a weekend retreat called The Walk to Emmaus, and they all put it up here. But over the years, it had a hard time making the journey to here. I was fortunate. I got a second touch several years ago over in the seminar room, and I'll tell you about that in a couple weeks. But that wasn't enough. My vision was so blurred, so skewed toward insecurity and anxiety and fear and other orphan behaviors that we talk about. Last week, we compared it to trying to steal what already belongs to me that I would need another touch. And that touch came a few years back. And the touch came through um, fellow pastor and friend Scott Hare. A lot of you remember when Scott was on this campus and then he went and started our our Riverside campus uh, up north. But one day, Scott came in for our weekly appointment that we always had Tuesday at 11, and Scott was usually there by about 11.15. He was there at 11. And usually, two or three times during the meeting, Scott would step out and take a phone call or make one. He didn't do that. He put his phone away. Showed up on time, 
his phone put away. This happened for a few weeks in a row. And also he said, I really need to apologize to you, David. And I said, for what? He said, when I was pastor on this campus, he said, I was about serving me and what I thought God was telling me to do. And I wasn't about helping you do the things God had put you here to do. Well, after three weeks of no phone and being on time and now this apology, I was hooked. I said, "Okay, what gives? What's up? And he began to talk with me about a concept that he called sonship or daughtership. We call it identity. And he talked to me about the relevant passages in the scripture, beginning with Galatians 4 that we talked about last week. Romans 8 that we are making sort of passing reference to this morning. And he talked with me about what it is to live as a beloved son or daughter of God. And as he explained it over the next little while, he didn't tell me anything I did not already know here. But everything he had told me, I was not living in my heart. But fortunately, as our discussion went further, I began to figure out why it is so many people hear over and over and over they are loved. Over and over and over that they are special. Over and over and over they are the beloved, but they can't live into it. I began to figure that out. You see, one of the things I've learned about biblical faith is that biblical faith starts with the particulars and then works to the universal. We like to say God is love, and then we figure out that we're loved. That's not how John figured it out. Remember John, the one who told us God is love? He called himself in the gospel of John the beloved disciple. He experienced the love of of Jesus. He experienced the love of God. And then from that, he was able to draw the larger overarching truth that God is in fact love. Put another way, I realized that one of the reasons why I was not experiencing life as a beloved son was that I wasn't living as a son. I wasn't living as a son to anybody. I was living out my own desires, my own plans. I was living an independent life. Not the life of a son, and the truth of the matter is you will never know yourself as a son or a daughter till you start living as one because it goes from the concrete then to the universal. It goes from the particular experience, and then it settles in here as you live that experience out. So Scott and I started talking about it. He said, look, he said, from the reading I've done and from what I've experienced, the problem here is, and he used it. He used the S word. The problem, he said, is that we don't submit. Now, submit has got a pretty bad reputation, the word submission. I remember years ago, I always give uh, brides and grooms, even to this day, the choice. They can pick out a scripture or I'll pick one out. So fairly early on, bride and groom said they didn't have one. So for this particular wedding, I chose it. And I chose Ephesians 5.21, submit to each other. And then it goes on to wives submit to your husbands. And then husbands love your wives the way Christ loved the church. And when I got to the first submit in 521, I saw our bouquet start to, start to twitch. And by the time I hit the second one in verse 23, I really thought I was going to have to duck. Submission for us gives that sense that we're supposed to grovel. That's not the biblical picture of submission at all. It's a word picture. In the Hebrew, it's I get down low, not to grovel, but so that I can lift you up. 
So I can help you be the places that God has called you to be and be the person God has called you to become. Submission is a picture of honor, respect, support. Husbands, submit to your wife. This, what it means is I need to find out who God is calling my wife to be and who she believes she's been called to be, and I need to do everything possible to help her get there. And if my wife is not living out of the unique claim that God has put on her life, I'm not, I'm not a husband. I'm not a good husband. The measure of our marriage isn't how I'm feeling. It's how she's doing. And the same for her. When she's figured out where God has put me here for, what God is wanting us to do, then she helps me move in that direction. It's a word picture. You get under to lift up. And so what Scott helped me see is that it starts by getting under our fathers and mothers, lifting them up, honoring them, dead or alive, honoring them, respecting them, forgiving them for where they've fallen short, asking for forgiveness for where we have fallen short. It's a beautiful picture. Let me give you a couple pictures of what submission looks like in the real world. Several months ago, I was at Trendy Library, and I picked an interesting book off the shelf. It's by a man named David Flusser, who's a, a wonderful, passed away, wonderful, a Jewish scholar, uh, lives in Jerusalem, uh, great relationships with Christians, has taught us a lot. But he writes in German. And an access is fairly limited. One of his disciples is a name some of you may be familiar with, a guy named David Bivens, who edits something known as the Jerusalem Perspective. He is uh, a, really a mentor in many ways to Ray Vanderland, who some of you know. Um, teaches us so much about Israel uh, that informs our trips. And in this book of Flusers, that was, Bivens talks about why he translated it from German to English so that a broader audience could read the book. And this is what he said. I am convinced that a disciple never publishes his own works until he or she makes sure that the rabbi's books are published. That's not about groveling, friends. That's about getting under, supporting, lifting up, honoring, moving forward. Here's what John the Baptist said about it. How did John the Baptist submit to Jesus? He said this, I must become less so that he can become more. That's all there is. It's about pushing someone forward by getting under them and lifting them up. And I've, be, I've be, finally began to figure out the reason why. It doesn't matter how many times we go on the walk to Emmaus or, or Kairos or how many weekend retreats or books we read, why it never sinks. It's because we don't act it out. We say, yeah, we're loved, we're loved, we're loved. We're beloved children. We go act like we're the parents. And we call the shots. We go our own stubborn way and wonder why we don't really experience deep down the security and assurance that a child of God should experience. And Scott helped me see that that was a big gap. And so I had to understand that what was my relationship with my parents and what was my relationship with the spiritual fathers and mothers that God had put in my path. So it started me on this journey. The first thing I did is... I decided that I needed to be a better son to my father. My father was living three hours away. I was never a bad son. I, I, I was a boring kid. I never even really had time or energy for teenage rebellion or college rebellion. Just wasn't me. But he lived three hours away, and all I did was call him like every Sunday night. And so I decided one of the things I'm going to do is make that relationship with my dad 
right. So I decided one of the things I could do once or twice a month was I could drop my son off at the high school, drive to Corpus Christi, stay for a long lunch, run any errands that dad needed uh, and mom needed, and then get back in time to pick up my son after tennis practice. And I did that for a month, for two months, for three months to live as a son. And then, well, there was a funeral, then there was an out-of-town tennis tournament, and then there was a guest speaker, and, and I missed a couple months where it was just phone calls. And then January 1st, 2009, I called home, uh, as I do on a regular basis, and mom answered the phone. That's very unusual. As a lot of you know, mom had Alzheimer's, and dad did everything he could to hide it from us. So he never let mom answer the phone. And when he put mom on the phone, he never gave her more than about a minute and a half. But she answered. So I'm like, Mom, where's dad? She said, Well, he's in the bathroom and he can't get out. He's in the tub. I can't get him out. Okay, mom, okay. So I hung up and I called my older brother who happened to live there and he got over and sure enough, dad's flu had gotten worse. He had pneumonia. He had no strength at all. And so mom was a safety concern, was kind of been loose in the house. So we went and we worked to straighten things out. And then, as many of you know, about six weeks later, suddenly my brother, uh, older brother died of a stroke. So we made the decision to move my mom and my dad up here. And suddenly it wasn't once a month or twice a month, but many days it was once a day or twice a day, three or four times a week, where I got the chance to do service for my mom and my dad. And I want you to know that my dad, in all that time, never failed for more than three and a half years to thank me for whatever I did and to tell me he loved me. I can't tell you how valuable that was. And I began suddenly to start experiencing what it is to be a son to God by being a son to my father. But I wouldn't finish because I knew I had spiritual fathers and mothers that I had not particularly honored. So, it's, so Scott and I made an appointment to have lunch with the bishop because the bishop is my spiritual father. He's the one God has put over me. So we went and had lunch with the bishop and we said, Bishop, we want you to know that whatever you need done, we are here to do it. That our mission is to honor whatever God has given you for, to do, and we want to do that. <clears throat> well, he almost choked. And then when he got his things back under control, he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to help you. I'm the bishop. I'm here to help you. And we go, well, that may be. But we want you to know whatever you want or need, we will do. We are here to carry out what you are asking us to do in this conference. And then... Um, as a result, some of you know that I ended up on a committee to put the two conferences that are kind of coterminous geographically, the Southwest Texas Conference and the traditionally uh, Spanish-speaking Rio Grande Conference. And so we started working on plans to, to unify them. And these were all-day meetings, two or three days a month, 10 hours. And most of you know me know an hour is my top limit. And when, the very first time we met, it was one of those, well, what are you doing here? Why do you think God has brought you here? So it's like, oh, I'm so excited. Some people said about what we can do. This is a wonderful opportunity. This is long overdue. And that's not wrong. Uh, and they talk about that. And then others said, well, you know, I think God's given me the gift of, and this is how that gift can be used. And they'd share that. And they got to me and I said, I'm here because he asked me. 
And whatever the bishop asks me to do, I'm going to do. Whatever I can do to help him, there's something he wants done, I'm going to do it. And they looked at me like I dropped in from Mars. Well, then next there was my immediate supervisor, the superintendent. So I had to make an appointment with him. I said, Carl, I'm here to serve you. And, and my, I, we've had wonderful superintendents through the years, and I always thought their job was to cover my backside. You know, their job was to keep the uh, imperial entanglements at bay so that uh, I, could, I could work on my own rebel project. But I came and I said, look, Carl, I want you to know that we're here to serve you. And that anything you ask me to do, unless it's illegal, immoral, or unethical, or unbiblical, I'm going to do it. And I ended up on two other committees. And I think $52,000 so far to special projects the superintendent has. But it's great stuff. Uh, It's been amazing because I began to really experience in my life what it is to be a child. And you cannot give it when you're out there acting as if you're independent. And then I've also made it my practice to go into any situation and find out who the spiritual mother or father is and come under what they're trying to do. So, for example, every January we go to Burundi. I have two jobs, just two, only two. Do whatever the bishop in Burundi wants me to do and do whatever the spiritual father on this trip, Clarence Bray, needs me to do. That's it. Whatever they ask me, I'll do it. I cannot tell you how that simplifies life. It gives me a channel, a boundary within which I can flow. I'm no longer sitting behind the curtain trying to pull this lever or that lever and blow smoke and use, uh, throw my voice. Try to pull stuff off. It takes so much energy to prove that you are God rather than just to act as if God is God and get with the program and get under it. And it has given me such freedom to go into any situation and say who's god put in charge here what does she need done i'll do it what does he need done i'll do it and that sounds so strange to our protestant ears because we don't trust we think whatever jesus tells us to do is just what we do and we completely toss out this structure that in god's wisdom we have about fathers and mothers and then kids You cannot be a father or mother spiritually until you've been a son or a daughter. It just won't work. Or else you'll just sow rebellion in the ranks. And I should think as Protestants, we've had enough of that already. Look how many denominations we have. Look how many split-off churches we have. Look how many debates and crises we have. Because no one is willing to come under and honor and respect and lift up Anybody else, as orphans, we try to steal what's already ours. Well, if I had time, I'd tell you just amazing things have happened. Let me just give you a couple instances real quick. Uh, A lot lot of us got to know a wonderful intern and then then pastor here, Mark Williams. Well, when Mark's wife had to uh, do her residency, uh, she ended up moving to Columbia, South Carolina. And that was a crushing blow to a lot of us who loved Mark. But this was so interesting. He went to Methodist Church there and talked to the superintendent and said, if you've got an open church, I'd love one. superintendent says, well, I don't really know that I've got anything. But since you're new here, I'm going to assign you a mentor. And Mark Williams got assigned a mentor named Willie Teague, who was like the bishop's right-hand person. He was like the provost or whatever they call it in that conference. 
Some of you know the story. Willie Teague was my mentor for three straight years when I was at Duke. The wisest, most authentic, vulnerable human being who mentored me for three years and taught me a lot more than I ever learned in school. And now there he was for Mark. Those things don't happen by accident. You can't sit behind the curtains and pull levers to make that happen. It just doesn't. Those are gifts that happen when you start lining up saying, God, I'm here to serve. Who do you want me to serve? Who can I show, to whom can I show honor and respect? And things start to unfold. One other story, real quick. I'm in a district meeting uh, because now it's one of the two district committees I found myself on uh, in submission. And at a break, the superintendent comes over to me and says, the bishop wants to visit with you. The bishop wants to see if the quarry on Thursday night we can work with Duke or whoever will work with us and the National Methodist Board and make it a substitute for seminary for people that can't afford to go there, especially coming from our smaller uh, Hispanic-dominated churches. I couldn't have drawn that one up on the board, friends. I didn't have vision for that. I don't know how it'll go, but I'll tell you this. Whatever it is he tells me to do, that's what Scott and I are going to try to do. Life is so much simpler now. It's so much more energy for me to prove to you how wonderful I am than just to say, look, I'm here. Who's in charge? Let me help. Oh, I'm in charge? Okay. I, it's, it's such a gift. Before I went to Africa this last time, we have a meeting on Tuesday of, the, of pastors and, and substitute preachers on, on our various campuses. About anywhere from 15 to 17 show up. And so... The week before I went to Africa, they all put me in a circle. I got a circle around, put me in a chair, and every one of them, one by one, told me what they were going to do over the next two weeks to make sure that nothing missed a beat while I was gone and what they would do for my family. Every one of them. And then they blessed me and prayed over me and let me go. Now, what do you think I do in return? Do you think I become a tyrant? And spiritually abuse them for getting under me? No, I scramble as hard and as fast as I can to lift them up and give them whatever opportunity I can give them. See, that's a beautiful thing. When we start living as sons and daughters, we don't open ourselves to abuse. We open ourselves to receive even greater encouragement and support than we'd get in the first place. Well, that's a part of my story. But let me quickly just tell you a couple other things, real short. So submission, even though we don't like the word, became a key for me. The other one was, we don't like this word either, repentance. I began to be on the lookout for orphan tendencies, for trying to steal what God had already given me. And so I wor- when I'm starting to feel jealous, envious, competitive, when I try to protect my image, do image management, anytime those things come up, then I've got to be on the lookout. You know, pastors, you probably don't know this, I'll trade secret, very competitive. Even, we can even make losing look like winning. So, for example, they could say to me, well, David, how's it going in Alma Heights? And I could say, humbly, oh, I don't know. You know, we only had 3,000 people pray and fast for 72 hours straight, and I was really hoping for 4,000. You know, we have such ways of even appearing humble and yet trying to stack ourselves higher rather than to say, what needs to be done here? How can I help do it? So repentance has been important to me. 
repenting of ways that I haven't served my parents and loved them, honored them, spiritual and biological, uh, repenting when I dishonor other people. Another one is you have to watch your shame voice. Your shame voice is going to come and say one of two things. It's going to say to you, you're not a child of God. You have to prove it. Why would anyone, do they know what you actually think in your free thoughts? If they only knew. If people really knew what you did when you were, pick the age, pick the day. And I'll tell you, it's too good to be true. It isn't true. You're going to have to earn it. So you have to speak to that shame voice. That's wrong. You don't have to earn any of it. Let's just start living into it. And the other voice is interesting too. It says, they're not worthy of your respect and honor. So-and-so, spiritual mother, father, doesn't know what they're doing. If you serve them, you're just going to give them a big head. If you, and so the voices will talk. And you just have to silence the voices. And begin to live into the wonder that is you by serving others. I was in the meeting Thursday and we were interviewing candidates for ministry, license or ordination. And one of them said this. He said, I was at a workshop in Kansas City and the worship leader was talking and he stopped and he looked at me. And he said, I want to tell you that if you are not living out the call of God on your life, you are robbing other people of the inheritance God has for them. I had to think about that. I always thought like this son and daughtership is just messing up my own life. I didn't realize how much larger the picture was. We can stay an orphan. We can keep striving. And we hurt ourselves. But what's worse, we rob the world of what God can do through us. And God can do a lot. And that's what we'll look at next week.